You're listening to the Christian Post Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Showalter. Many people know at least one person who is suffering from anxiety, depression, or another kind of mental illness. And yet, sadly, in some churches, the issue continues to be stigmatized. Author, pastor, and therapist Ryan Casey Waller knows this all too well. Having experienced firsthand the bitter conflict of wrestling with his own mental health while maintaining a robust faith in Jesus Christ, he'll tell you that the journey can be lonely and discouraging. Yet it does not and should not have to be this way. Mental health issues do not mean that you lack faith or have failed spiritually, he stresses in his new book, Depression, Anxiety, and Other Things We Don't Want to Talk About. And suffering in this way may be the very means by which the Lord brings healing as he leads mental health strugglers toward restoration. Waller further argues that churches must engage the subject of mental health more thoughtfully, understand how the human brain works, understand how theology and spirituality intersect with biology, and why emotional intelligence should receive more attention. To discuss all these things and more, I'm so glad to welcome him as my guest today on the CP Podcast. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, let's start the start this off by asking the big question. Why is mental health the thing we just don't want to talk about? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think primarily it's been the thing we don't want to talk about because there's been such a stigma attached to it in the sense that in the past, so often, if anyone came out and openly discussed their struggles with depression or anxiety, there was sort of a label that was attached to them that said, okay, you're mentally ill. And that's a label that I think a lot of people feel like they could never take off. And so unlike other illnesses that are seen as transitional or periodic or something that can be cured or worked through, there's a great, great sense the stigma that a mental illness is permanent and it somehow puts you in a different category from which you can sort of never escape. And so I think that great stigma that's been attached to the to the perceived permanence of the issue has been one of the greatest reasons people haven't wanted to talk about it. I think that's probably right. Uh, people associate all kinds of things with mental illness <clears throat> that they don't with physical illness, but you know, your brain is your body. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it's, it really is. I mean, why, if you have something wrong with your brain and the sort of the complexity of the human endocrine system and all the things, your limbic system, all the things that really affect mood and stress and all that, it's like that is a very physiological thing in the same way that a bacterial infection or a virus or a cancer is. And yet it, it, is, it is amazing how people make that, that separation. Let's just probe a little deeper than on that. It's like, yeah. why do people separate the brain from the body when, in fact, your brain is your body? Yeah, your brain is your body. Well, I actually don't think a lot of people think of it that way with mental illness, right? Um, particularly in, in, in faith communities, it's often thought about as not really necessarily a brain issue, but it's more of a, a soul issue or a spiritual issue, right? So it's not necessarily you know, uh, a functioning of my brain, but it has to do with some kind of either character flaw or a sin or, you know, a lack of, of devotion, which I want to talk about, but I don't want to skip past the importance of what you just said. You know, our brain is our body. Mm -hmm. And so it is a physiological issue. Now, now with mental illness, it can often be more than that. So it can be, right. you know, brain functioning, but then the other factors, which we'll talk about, but at its core, if we are saying, look, 
this is physiological, at least at some level or some capacity, like any other disease. Well, that's really important, right, to help kind of remove that stigma of like this is a permanent thing, especially when we consider the nature of the brain. What we know about the brain today and what we're learning each and every day is that the brain is far more elastic than we used to believe or ever led to, to even hope for. In other words, what's happening with a person's brain today does not necessarily mean that's what's going to be happening with a person's brain uh, tomorrow or in the days and weeks, months and years to come. We can rewire certain patterns and do a lot to change the way that our brain operates. Mm -hmm. And so when we say, okay, you're talking about neuroplasticity. Yeah, neuroplasticity. That's exactly right. We can do a lot. You know, we used to, the, the general kind of like science of it used to be, well, look, you know, you kind of have what you have and it's developed by a certain age and then th that's it. But what we've discovered by looking at the brain and watching it work is that, no, this thing is plastic. We can change all kinds of thought patterns and behaviors um, well into our, well into our old age. In fact, this is one of the, the greatest things we can do, right. To help offset, um, dementia and, and, you know, and other cognitive functioning problems that we have as we get older is by making use of and really flexing the muscle of the brain. So all that to say, like, even at its basic level, if we were just looking at it, you know, from a physiological perspective, there's a lot of hope and there should be sort of this just initial understanding that this idea that if you've been diagnosed, right, with major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, that that's exactly what your brain is going to do for the rest of your life. It's simply not true. Well, and that is really interesting in point two, because I, I, I think this is especially important for churches who, uh, let, let's just be honest, uh, it's not overstating it to say that we are in the midst of a crisis. And I think the coronavirus pandemic has accentuated it in some ways because it's not just uh, this you know, infectious, gnarly flu that afflicted so many people, but the other factors that have come along with that and the mental health struggles that people have had because of it. And so we're going to have to learn how to deal with this. Uh, could you mm -hmm. speak a little bit more to the tendency of churches to sort of think that you know, any kind of mental health struggles is a result of immoral behavior or maybe even something demonic or a character flaw yeah. or, I mean, because here's the thing. Yes, we need, we absolutely do need to understand how the human brain works. And yet I think it's also true that our actions, our behavior, our, what we do with our bodies can affect our mental health too. And so it's, I don't think that, I mean, churches are absolutely wrong to just immediately think that any kind of mental health issues are a result of all those things I just mentioned. But those things also can affect mental health. And so how, how, do, you, how do churches balance this? Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic question. Well, it's going to be complicated, and it's going to require a nuanced approach. I mean, the reality is, like, there have been centuries and centuries where the church just hasn't been fantastic about this, right? right? So a lot of the sort of origins of why do we connect this to, like, a spiritual failing or assume that it's a, a demonic possession or that somebody has, you know, hidden sin in their life mm -hmm. that they haven't repented from, well, that's because the church has basically taught that for a long time, right. and that's sort of been the default position. I mean, you even find it sort of embedded— 
within some of the stories in scripture, like when Job is talking to his friends and he's like, look, my life is falling apart. You know, one of the things that they hammer home to him is they're like, hey, God really must be upset with you because you clearly have some sort of hidden sin in your Mm -hmm. life that you need to confess and repent of. Like, just tell us what it is. Right. And then we'll get going. He's like, well, I don't know what it is. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. I'm living this, this righteous life. I, I don't understand what's happening. And so similarly, there's been that approach and look for a long time, it's, it, it's kind of reasonable, right? right? Because it looks so different. The way that the symptoms sort of manifest themselves often with mental illness are in behaviors, right? I mean, right. that's how we diagnose mental health issues is, you know, by we cluster symptoms together that are mostly behavioral. And so when you see someone sort of acting in certain ways or engaging in self-destructive behavior or not getting out of bed because they're depressed and you can kind of like say, oh, well, maybe that that looks like sloth to me, right? Or maybe someone's on a, in a manic episode and they're running around you know, proclaiming that they're, you know, going to be the next president of the United States or whatever it might be. And we say, well, I think you're just being like really prideful or you're, you're self-obsessed, right? We can miss these things, right? Mm-hmm. We can, we can sort of translate them as sinful behaviors. And so that's been going on for a long time. So it's like, while I want to critique the church, I, I want to do it gently and say like, look, there's been centuries of sort of like not approaching this in the most helpful way. So we can be gracious with ourselves, but the reality is, as you say, we are now in a crisis, and the time has come for us to have more nuanced, complicated, and helpful discussions around this issue in the church because people are hurting. Yeah. And if the church is going to be a place that truly welcomes all forms of suffering, then it has to be able to make space for people to come in and express that they're battling their mental health and not be met with immediate judgment about what that means. Mm -hmm. But for the church to be able to say, okay, look, here's what might be happening here, that you could be experiencing something that's rooted in your biology, could also be experiencing something that is rooted in your socioeconomic class. You could be experiencing something that is rooted in the kind of home that you grew up with in the relationships. It could also be rooted in some of your behavior that, that's ongoing right now. What we need to do is be willing to just accept what's happening and not immediately over-spiritualize it. Right. So to your point, I absolutely think, right, if we're gonna if we're gonna really treat people of course, their spiritual life is going to be a big part of what's going on with their health. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to discourage people from seeking out the professional resources that exist. And so, so often what's happened in the church is there's been such a suspicion, I think, between sort of the spiritual world and the psychological community, and Mm -hmm. sometimes for good reason, right? right? This distrust of these two different communities. But what we want to do is as a church be able to say, like, we can provide a spiritual home for you, right? A place. But what we also want to do is encourage you to go and seek out the help that you might need, be it from a counselor 
or a doctor or a recovery group, whatever it is, we don't want to write those off as if to say, like, because those might be, you know, quote unquote, secular in nature, that they're not helpful to you. We want to take the same approach that we take with any other kind of disease, where if somebody comes in and says, look, you know, the doctors are telling me, you know, or let's say I've got pain in my chest. And so I saw my doctor and they're telling me, look, I need to have open heart surgery. We say, okay, well, you absolutely need to follow your doctor's instructions, have the open heart surgery. But at the same time, you know, you bet we're going to be praying for you. I want you to be praying. I want you to surround yourself, right, with people that love you and care for you. I want you to find comfort in the words of Scripture. But we also need to do exactly what it is that our doctors are telling us to do and avail ourselves to their forms of healing. Mm -hmm. And, And so similarly, what I want the church to be able to do is to quiet down a bit and say, okay, what is it that we can learn? Right from these from these other folks, um, because uh, they've got they've got resources, right? right? And, and 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 you know, and to, and to flip the script as well, I think, and this is probably a, a kind of another conversation, but the psychological community, I think, is actually becoming more open and receptive to what faith communities have to say, and the further we go down this road, we realize that both communities have a lot to learn from one another. And if we're going to really treat people in their totality, body, mind, and soul, then we have to take seriously a person's spiritual life. Amen. Well, that is so good what you said just there. And But I'd like to touch a little bit on something that you said just very quickly, but I think it's worth yeah. probing because, uh, you know, you say that sometimes there are faith communities that sort of stand at odds with the psychological communities, and yeah. sometimes for good reason. And I can just say that certainly there are great mental health professionals and good psychologists and counselors out there. I know them personally. Some of them are friends of mine. And yet I'm also seeing some very troubling trends within that community too. Just to give an example, I know people who are psychologically distressed, and there's a swath, and it's pretty large in some areas, especially where the immediate assumption is that there's something wrong with their gender and they'll be prescribed or recommended, you know, cross-sex hormones or something. And it's, it's really alarming stuff out there. Now, that's not the only example. That's just one. But where do you think, um, you know, churches need to stand in opposition to psychology and where can it be embraced? It seems like it's a very fine line there, but I, I absolutely want to underscore that I absolutely believe that there are good professionals out there that can really help people. Yeah, I think it's like sort of anything else. Well, people individually, and even as, you know, communities, it's important to, to submit yourself to the care of someone for whom you share some values with, if that makes sense. So oftentimes what I recommend people do, and particularly churches, if I want to speak more at a macro level, it's really important for churches to have referral list of professionals in their area whom they trust. So it takes some work on church leaders to go out and say, okay, who's in our, who is in our area? Who are good working professionals that we also trust to sort of um, give proper care and guidance to our people? And that requires going out and talking to people and figuring out where they're coming from. I was talking to somebody else the other day, and I said, the reality is, you know, when you go to see counselors, like it is not an even playing field. I mean, both in terms of just kind of the level of care that you get, and there's a lot of different value systems right out there. So you're going to find everyone who's going to like want to, you know, some people are going to jump to medication, some people are going to jump to certain conclusions. I've had a lot of folks that have come to me and said, look, 
the difficulty that I've had is when I've gone to other therapists and I've wanted to talk about the role of my of my faith and my relationship with God, they would simply dismiss all of that as as delusional, wow. right? Or they would want to say like, you know, you're you're focusing on God and the life to come is just totally like death denial. What you need to do is, you know, give up this sort of delusion that you have and come back, you know, to the here and the now and completely be dismissive of how important, you know, faith in God is for this particular person. And so, yeah, if you're in a situation where you're, you're, you're highly depressed and your faith is really important to you and you find yourself right under the care of, of a therapist who thinks that, you know, all religion is essentially, you know, worthless right. or in fact right. destructive, that's not going to be helpful. And, and right. yeah. And so somewhere in the gender question is, is really complicated, but yeah, we are seeing, um, there's actually a new study that I haven't got to read yet recently, um, about some of the the negative outcomes that we're having from certain children entering into the the transition process too early in life and all there's a, there's a lot of debate right out there about all of that but i think it's really really important that if you're an individual and you're going to see a therapist know that you have every right to sort of explore where they stand on certain issues Right. And so you can have an alignment there. And I think, as I say, like church leaders, do your job, help your people out by gathering referral lists for people that you think are good. So you can, you can, you know, recommend those when appropriate and feel confident about your referrals. If you would now, I'd love to hear about your own journey with your mental health and how, mm. how did you suffer and what was it like, you know, now that you're, you've seemed to have broken through some of the the real struggle and you've come to this developed mm -hmm. understanding of the human brain and emotional intelligence and all this, what was it like when it first became apparent to you that you were really hurting, you were really yeah. suffering and that your faith in Jesus was, you know, you didn't want, you didn't want to be where you were. And yet for whatever reason, you know, faith wasn't getting you through it like you had yeah. hoped it would. Yeah. You know, I think, I understood for most of my life that I was a nervous person. And, you know, as far back as I can remember, I would have, you know, pretty, pretty severe, just anxiety about things. I was wound really tight. Um, and I kind of just thought, um, I recognize that maybe my peers don't feel as tight as I do, but maybe this is just how I'm, how I'm made. And I just sort of have to deal with this. And so for many, many years, that's what I did. And even as I grew older and those sort of uh, bouts of anxiety would often be followed by waves of despair, sort of days in which I would feel hopeless. I didn't really have a name for it. I didn't really fully understand what was going on. But again, I sort of just thought, well, I guess this is sort of my, my lot in life. And I would always bring it to God in prayer. And I absolutely found, you know, some solace there. But the reality was the anxiety and the depression just never went away. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I began to have panic attacks, which and if anyone's ever had a panic attack, they understand this is something that can simply not be ignored. This is you know, basically like a hurricane in the brain where you become convinced in some situations, in my situation, I would become convinced that I was going to die, that I was going to have a heart attack. My heart would be racing. I would feel, you know, stinging pain down my arms and it was just completely consuming. And once that happened, that disrupted my life enough that I was finally like, okay, I 
cannot pray my way through this thing, mm-hmm. and I am not willing to live this way any longer. If there's help that can be had, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. And that was when I first finally went to see a therapist and began that process. And I I, I really and I say this in the book like. There are three like major decisions in my life that I can say, you know, have kind of like dictated everything. The first was accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as my savior. Like number one, right? Like there it is. I found that. The second one was choosing to marry my wife. And the third was going to therapy and beginning taking medication. Because without that, I mean, I can tell you, you can cut my life in half before I began treatment and after I began treatment. And I never want to go back (laughs) Mm -hmm. to not uh, you know, being in the treatment that I'm in. Now that doesn't mean it was sort of a one-stop shop for me and I did it and then everything was fine. Absolutely not. And I've had struggles since then, but the reality is my depression and my anxiety has to be treated for the chronic condition that it is much like somebody with diabetes. You don't just do the insulin once and then it's over that this is something that's got to be watched and monitored. And at times it's going to flare up. And it's going to cause you a little bit more difficulties than at others, but the reality is it exists. And so I have to acknowledge that it exists and do everything that I know to be doing to stay as healthy as I can possibly stay. Well, that's that, that's just gold. I think that's just so awesome. And so when did you feel as though, after, you know, you say that this therapy was so helpful for you, you, you sort of marks, punctuates your life in a way. Yeah. Was there a moment in that process where sort of the light bulb went off and you had sort of a, I mean, obviously the spiritual and the mental and our physical, they're all interconnected. We are, you know, we're body, soul, and spirit as human beings. But was there, was there a moment in a therapy session or even in this whole process of your, you know, healing from these afflictions where you just sort of felt like, oh, I, I get it now. I have... A solid understanding of what's been going on, and because of that knowledge, I'm empowered and I feel better. And was there a moment or two like that? Yeah, yeah. It's a. I love that question. It was. It's like it's a yes and no. And let me tell you the no first. It is oftentimes a slow unfurling. So, like when I first began to go to therapy, my symptoms became worse because it's like any other like wound, right? Or or say there's like a, say I've got like a tumor growing in my body. If if I'm going to let the the doctor like cut open my body and remove that tumor, there's going to be some trauma involved in that process. It's going to hurt. But then the tumor is going to be out. If I, if I leave the tumor, right, it's going to metastasize and then ultimately it's going to kill me. So when you start the process of therapy, it's not an immediate feel good thing. I mean, I think there were there were months there where I was like, I would come home and tell my wife, I'm like, I can't believe I'm paying this guy to essentially torture me in this way. Like I'm sitting here, right? And I'm opening up my life and I'm delving into things and I'm externalizing thoughts and feelings and actions that I've kept internal for a long time. And it hurts to look at and it's painful to look at. And at times I felt like I was regressing. So it's a slow process. It's not an immediate fix because it's, it, it, it is just that it's a process, but I can tell you there was a morning and I'll never forget it. A few months into it where, uh, my, my firstborn son was still really, really small and it was a Saturday morning and I had had so much anxiety for so long. And I remember I was walking him around the block and I was drinking a cup of coffee 
And it was a clear morning. It was kind of cold outside. And I just had this moment where I realized that the tightness in my chest wasn't there. Mm. And I noticed the birds. And I was able just to appreciate that the air felt crisp. And I felt as though I were just in the present moment. And I thought, my goodness, I haven't felt this kind of relief in years. Interesting. Wow. And so it wasn't some sort of like, yeah, like euphoria high. It was just the absence of the symptoms. Interesting. And it was amazing. And what it did was it gave me hope Mm -hmm. that, right, that because I could feel that again, it gave me the hope that, oh, maybe I can live my life and I can get to a place where I am not constantly, right, just under the weight of feeling anxious or depressed. And that was something that for a while, when I was at my worst, I had trouble believing, and that's one of the more difficult parts about mental illness. Those of us who suffer with our mental health, when it is in full bloom, one of the hardest parts is that it feels as though you are never going to feel any better. And you feel that's when the hopelessness can come in because it's like this pain is too great. And if this is never going to end, I can't imagine living life this way, which is is why I think during this pandemic so many people – who haven't necessarily struggled with their mental health or struggling right now, because it's been a similar kind of pain because people are like, well, when is this going to be over? And and the answer is, well, we don't really know when this is going to be over. If you were able to tell people, okay, you're going to have to continue to live this way or make these sacrifices, you know, for six months, then it's going to be over. Well, then we, we know how to categorize that in our brain. We're like, all right, I can hold on. But when the answer is uncertain, that's when the pain really takes on kind of a new ferocity. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I want to address something that we talked just briefly mentioned a little bit ago with, with regarding the church, and I think it's a very destructive uh, lie, and yet it's also something we can't ignore entirely. And you, I think you said it too, that the assumption, the long-running assumption in many, not all churches, but many, is that if mental health is a result of a sinful pattern of behavior or some kind of character yeah. flaw, but also something spiritual or demonic. Now, they think you're demon-possessed if you have a mental illness, and it's like, that is so not true. It is, you can be a mental health sufferer and not be demonically possessed, obviously. Yes. However, I and my our listeners here at the Christian Post know, I think they know, I'm an Anglicostal, Anglican Pentecostal kind of Christian, okay. and I, I, <laughs> nice. be, I believe very much that, you know, Ephesians 6 is true. Spiritual warfare is real. You know, Jesus spoke about the demonic many times. And I actually know some people who used to be very involved in the occult and witchcraft and, you know, dark spiritual things. And they, because of their involvement in that kind of dark stuff, they suffered terribly with their Mm -hmm. mental health. I mean, it's a very, I mean, spiritual wickedness can contribute to mental health struggles. Can you give some thoughts on that? Because I think it's one of the, that it is probably, it has, it would have to be, if I was a mental health sufferer and I've, I've experienced some ups and downs, I don't think I've endured what you have, but like, I can't imagine the torment and the, how horrible it would be to hear from the church that I was somehow demonized if I had a mental health struggle or whatever. I mean, can you address that lie, but also speak to the reality of, you know, spiritual light and darkness and how, yeah. You can thread that needle more effectively. 
Yeah. Let me address the lie first because it's so important for anyone that's listening and they are they are struggling. One of the more gnarlier aspects, right, of mental illness is that when we're suffering, one of the the ways that our brain, you know, this here's how sophisticated depression is. You you not only just feel terrible and feel hopeless, but then you begin to feel a great deal of guilt for the way that you feel. So you feel as though you're a terrible burden on everybody, that your children deserve someone who doesn't have this affliction, that you're not really worth any of the love that's given to you. You know, uh, everyone around you would be better off with you gone. Um, and then that quickly, you know, turns into the shame where it's like, no, I don't just have like these difficulties. Like I am the difficulty, right? I am bad. I am worthless. The lies I just should... compound each other. They, they just, just yeah. Com- yeah, yeah, they just compound each other. So where this lie about, the, you know, everyone who suffers is, you know, is demonically possessed becomes that much more dangerous is imagine if you're already feeling that way, right? right? right. And you go to the church, or you go to your pastor, right? You go to, to the, the, the God of infinite love and the people who trust to tell you about this God. And if you describe what you're feeling and they tell you, well, you've opened yourself to demons yeah. somehow, or you've been taken over, imagine the level of shame oh. and guilt and confusion, right? That, that, that can come in that moment when what they need to hear in that moment, right? Is that there is a God who loves them regardless mm-hmm. and that they have not chosen to bring this upon themselves, that it's just a reality, but that the promises of God are every bit as true for them as anyone else, right? Mm-hmm. So what they need in that moment is total love and grace and acceptance. And so to be met with some, well, we're going to need to cast this demon out of you. It's simply not helpful. And in fact, very, very dangerous. Yeah. Now, now here's the reality. And I think the other part that you're getting at, while it is true, right, that if someone's suffering from depression or something, we, we cannot jump to like, well, there must be like sin in your life. It is also true that the things we think about, the things that we do, the, the, the activities that we engage in, of course, are going to affect us. Right. Now, and so we can exacerbate and make our situation much, much worse. And I will say, right, if we believe, right, we believe in the Holy Spirit, of course, we, we believe in, in evil spirits. And it's impossible, as you say, to read the Gospels and dismiss the demonic. I mean, especially mm-hmm. like, right, the Gospel of Mark, like Jesus is described, right, as an exorcist mm-hmm. over and over and over again. You just like simply, you, you can't get around it if you take if you take the Bible like seriously. You just mm-hmm. cannot get around it. Right. So um, it would only make sense, right, if someone's actively involved in the occult or actively involved in evil spirits that, that, that the, the attack on the mental health would be one of the, if not the primary right. way right, then evil spirit would go about because, trust me, for those of us who know what it's like to suffer in your mind, I can't think of a worse kind of suffering. I mean, the, what I tell people sometimes is that the places that I've been and what I've had to go through, I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. Right. right. It is unlike any other kind of right. suffering. It's, it feels like torture. And so, um, you know, the folks who you know, who you've spoken to, I imagine, right, they've experienced that. And so, and yeah, so if they're going to, if, 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 if an evil spirit is going to be involved, right, there's nothing they could do worse to the person than get inside their own brain 
you know, and, and, and mess with it. Um, but what I would also say, you know, so to, to any of those folks, like what we do believe, right. When it comes to, to, to evil spirits, right. Is that in the name of Jesus, we have power, yes. right. And so those spirits, there's, right, God has defeated, right. Uh, the devil. And so there is, can be release and redemption and rescue from all of that. But that's also not to say then we've got still got to take seriously. If someone's been through that, and they're actually in that situation where they need a casting out of the spirit. Well, okay, well, God can do that. But that doesn't mean that now that they haven't suffered some serious trauma right. that they're going to need to maybe continue to process right. through therapy because it's a real event just like mm-hmm. anything else. So just because it was um, just because it was sort of rooted in spirituality mm-hmm. doesn't mean that just because then maybe we've addressed it spiritually that we still don't need to address it physiologically and emotionally. That's so good. That's so good. You say churches need to value emotional intelligence more. Why? Yeah. Well, because I don't think we place enough value on two things, how we know and understand ourselves and how we know and understand other people. So if you look at early Christianity, right, maybe even like the first thousand years, there was a far greater emphasis on knowing oneself in connection to knowing God, right? So Augustine wrote about this a lot. Like you have to know yourself to know God because we're all made in the image of God. So as we come to know God, we come to know ourselves. As we come to know ourselves, we come to know God. What seems to have happened, maybe since like the Enlightenment, is that we've gotten too intellectual about this Amen. and taken it outside of knowing ourselves. And it's all just about, uh, let me just, if I know the right things about God, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay, right? So I need to know the right let me get the right doctrine, right? The right theology. I think therefore I am, right? I think therefore I I am, am. yeah. Yeah. Descartes, and it's just not true. It's it's not not to say that it's not important, right? And of course, like what it is that we believe, right, really does affect our life. That's why theology is so important. You know, you can't just believe anything. But the the thing is, like, that's that's not the totality of our experience. Good. Right. You know, and, and and so we've got to understand ourselves. And, and, and so the more we understand ourselves, the more we'll understand God. And so also just the emotional intelligence, like we need to be mindful, right, that how we interact and how we open ourselves up to others and treat others and interact with them is going to have you know a great effect on our lives. Like we were told, right, the world will know us by our love. Mm-hmm. So it's not just enough to kind of like know that we are to love, but how is it that we love ourselves and how is it that we go about loving others? And so I just think that this kind of this there's this whole arena of significant importance that we've that we've that we've dropped off. And and look, I can tell you, here's just one example of how how starving people are for it is if you just notice the um, the incredible popularity of the Enneagram in the last few years, particularly right. among Christian circles, whether you think the Enneagram is, is helpful or you think it's not helpful or, or whatever it is, what we can't deny is that this little personality test who no one even knows what the origins of the Enneagram are, and it's also um, you know sort of like not research-based, but a lot of people find it really, really helpful, and, and it is, but People are clamoring for it. And what it tells me, at least when I saw that thing just explode again in popularity, is I thought, oh, my goodness, we have failed to encourage Christians to know themselves. We have failed. We have failed to encourage them to explore 
the uniqueness of their personality is given to them by God. And we've just kind of told them, just know these things, knows these things about God. And we're dropping out the importance of knowing yourself because knowing yourself will lead you into experiencing God on a deeper level. That's so good. And, yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. You can pound and pack your head full of theology and doctrine and, and miss God. <laughs> That's and it's, it, it really, it's just stunning to think about that for a moment. But it's like, y- yes, I believe our brains are made for faith but there is so much more. We aren't just programmable computer programs. We, we're, we're human not. beings, and the human experience is so much deeper and broader uh, than I think what some churches have allowed for. Wow, this has been such a stimulating conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about mental health that you just really want the church to get? Maybe if you, like the most critical point you make in your book, or just what's the burning on your heart to yeah. you know, restore this to God's, God's church? Yeah, the thing that I want people to know and that I will bang this drum until the day that I die is that if you're suffering today and you have given up hope, please push pause on that button. I want you to know that no matter how dark it feels, your tomorrow can be very different than today. God is the God of all healing, and we have been provided with resources that he has given through therapy, psychotherapy, through medication, through the way that people come together and support each other in groups. And if you haven't availed yourself to those, please, I beg of you to do so. You can find healing. And what I want churches to know is, please, for so many people, this is a life or death situation. Mm. Suicide now is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It is the second leading cause of death among our adolescents. Cannot stand by and let this happen. Jesus Christ will be right in the middle of this discussion, helping people get to where they need to go. And we've got to do it. We cannot ignore this suffering. There are resources to be had. So please, I know it's scary to raise your hand and say, I need help, but asking for help is never weakness. It is only strength. Brian Casey Waller, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.